Hello, listeners. This is David, co-host of the Single Dad Why You Mad podcast, and we just wanted to let you know that the airing of this particular episode is also the launch of our YouTube channel, where you can catch clips of our interview, It Takes a Village, with Guy Bryant, foster father extraordinaire to over 50 boys to men in Brooklyn, New York. So go check out the YouTube channel, Single Dad Why You Mad, for clips from this episode, plus more video content from the Single Dad Why You Mad podcast. Doing business with our kids. Single Dad, Why You Mad. This is a special episode, and I cannot guarantee that I'm not going to get through it without getting emotional, all right? So my name is David, and I'm a single dad to my one and only child. His name is Miles, and he was born when I turned 50 years old. And I'm Clark. I'm a single dad to three girls, ages 18, 13, and 11. I had my first kid at 25, so pretty much been daddy my entire adult life. <laughs> More daddying than not daddying. And just to be clear for anybody who's newly joining us or to remind anybody, we define single dads as a dad who is not in a relationship with the co-parent, but spends a significant amount of time with his children. He's not just throwing money at the issue, either because the courts are requiring him to or because he his baby mama off his back. He spends a significant amount of time parenting. What do you call it? I say businessing with your kids. Businessing with your kids. You, Doing business with his kids. Right. You, you are actually actively involved in stewarding the developers, soon-to-be adults. So let me just speak for me real quick. Even before we were in court, me and my son's mother had an agreement where we split him 15 days out of the month. He's with her X number of days during the week. He's with me X number of days during the week. And then we normally split one day out of the week. So right now that's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays he's with me. Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays he's with her. And then we split Sundays in half and she has to work. I have him during the day and she takes him overnight. If she doesn't have to work, I have him overnight. She takes him during the day. Sure. So in our case, it's very much a split schedule. I have him four days a week. She has him three days a week, my ex-wife and I. And we came to that decision prior to going to court, and we've only been to court the one time, and that was to sign the divorce papers. We try to work together. We try to keep things very flexible when necessary. So if I have something going on on for work, she has something going on for work, we try to accommodate each other as best as possible. And then uh, we have a reminder. Well, I I think every episode, it makes sense to remind people that we are not child-rearing co-parenting, legal, financial, or baby mama experts. We are two guys who are going through it in the thick of it, just like many of you, and we chose to share our experiences. You will hear me say it time and time again, we are flying the plane and changing the oil. And uh, want to make sure that you guys are aware that we're not throwing ourselves out as experts. And if you have experiences you want to share, feel free to reach out. We love to hear them. Yeah. And then um, one of the last things we want to do is uh, we like to clear about the name. What is it a name, right? It's just a name, right? Single dad, why you mad? It doesn't mean that uh, I'm a single dad and I'm walking around mad all the time. It's ambiguous for a reason. And I think one of the first times it, it, it ever dawned on me, the single dad, why you mad name, is I was standing outside the Apple store. I had my son in the rack. Not the carrier, the movie, the rap. Oh, 
the one you had to wrap around the top. Yeah. And I had Pampers hanging out mm-hmm. in one pocket, and I had a bottle hanging out the other, and I think I had his pacifier in my mouth. Hey, James. I'm sorry I'm late. Can we get a chair for you right back here, James? James is a single dad, and he was in our foster care system. Slide over right in here, James, please. We need to get you. This is a treat. Get in the middle. Get in the middle. Well, we're all family here. We're all family. family. Okay, all right. So um, um, I had the wrap on, and this woman comes up to me, and I think I had this pacifier in my mouth, and this woman comes up to me, and she says, you look amazing. And then she turns around, and she says, okay, you're waiting for mom? And I said, no. And she says, uh, you're out here by yourself? And I said, yeah. And she says, who wrapped that for you? I said, I wrapped it. And she says, I don't even know how to wrap one of those. So that's what's sort of like the evolution of it. So it's not so much single dad is mad, but it could be single dad, you're looking at me and you look mad because I'm handling my business. We got uh, some feedback on one of our uh, episodes, right? And somebody sent in a comment that said, watch out, the feminists are coming for you. And I responded, we would be worried if this was an anti-feminist movement, but it's not. We support and talk about the struggles of single moms all the time. We're just speaking in a voice that has uh, not really been uh, heard too much, which is single dads. Precisely. You, you look at it, and when you are a single dad and you're out and about and you're doing your daddy thing, people aren't used to seeing it. And you're an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And this podcast and this format, it's not anti-anything. It's you know, just providing a platform for us to share those experiences. I think it makes sense to just dive in. Okay. And I, I think, I think we, we, we have some great guests today. We have some great experiences that I, I can't wait to hear. So pardon me for being a bit overzealous and cutting to the chase. All right. So this is part of our It Takes a Village series. We're here with Guy Bryant, single dad extraordinaire, uh, single dad to the 50th power. Am I correct? At least, who was featured in an article on the Huffington Post. Let me just also say that why is this issue important to me is because I grew up in foster care. Um, my parents were uh, 14 and 15. This was back in the 60s, right? So uh, you ain't just walk around pregnant at 14, 15 years old. When she started the show, they sent her to a home for unwed mothers. And then she had me at Queens General Hospital, and I never came home from there, right? She came back to visit me a couple of times but I never went home from there. I went to live with a foster family for about two years, and they were older, and one of the things that they said, and now I only found out all of this because, you know, I went back and looked at the records and stuff like that, that they didn't think it was fair that I stayed with them, that I needed to be with some parents who were a little bit younger who could see it all the way through. So then I went to live with the people who actually raised me, and whenever I see my parents and my family, that's who I'm speaking of, Sydney and Gloria Crockett. So people often ask me, how you got the name David Crockett? Right? And they think that somebody was trying to play a cool joke, y'all all sitting here laughing, right? right. All right. Um, but no, that's not how it happened. My biological mother named me David, and then I went to live with the Crockett family. Wow. And it just worked out that way. So at any point were you ever Davy? So if I come off a little aggressive and a little rough, it's because I heard it all the way through school, and I've had to find my way. But it created character. You get no sympathy from the guy who's been Clark Kent his entire life. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. So that's why this issue is important to me. Uh, we're sitting with Guy Bryant. Guy was featured in an article where um, he has foster fathered at least 50. Probably over the years more unofficially fostered than And I have a 50-year-old that calls me dad, and I'm 62. And he's 50. And he, um, I actually met him at my first real job with the city when I was 22, and he was 10. And he still calls me dad. I'm still in touch with him. So before we dive into that, because I think there's so much to unpack here and so much to talk about in terms of, in the vein of our first episode, how did you get here? But I think we should also take time to introduce our other guests as well. Yeah. Okay. okay. Hello. Hello. I'm Stephanie. I have the pleasure of being Guideline's supervisor. That's wonderful. Um, for how long? I have known him for, oh, maybe 12 years. So you know him? Yes. Okay. 
right. And aside from being a supervisor, I would definitely call him a friend. Yes, she knows me. Yeah. All right. Yes. Okay. And then also with us is James Milan. James Milan. Okay. And how do you know Guy? I'm working there. Okay. And you're a single dad also? I wouldn't say a single dad, but I co-parent. You co-parent? Yes. Okay. All right. So we'll dive into the yeah. difference. We'll dive into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I, I think let's start with how did you get here? How did you, well, first, how did you come to the department? How did you come to, to, to the organization? Okay. And give us a little bit about your tenure, your history here. All right. So we'll start with, from the business aspect. When I was 20 years old, I was in college and moved out on my own into a house with two other gentlemen who I was in, I was in a fraternity with. And I needed income, like, badly. And so I was in college, and there was a girl in college, and she said, um, I think you'd be great. I work, in, I work for the Board of Ed during the day in a program for um, emotionally disturbed youth. And I was like, so she said, just come one day. And I went one day, and I really had a good time. And it was lots of fun. And the principal, she observed me, and she was like, um, you're definitely a natural for this. She said, I, I need to hire me, she said. Well, the starting pay would be like fourteen dollars an hour. Back in forty-two years ago, fourteen dollars an hour Amazing. was a fortune. Amazing. Okay. And I was like, just tell me what I got. Fourteen dollars an hour is probably pretty good right, right now. now. Yeah, okay. that right now. So go ahead. Fourteen. She said, "Well, it's not going to be easy work." I said, fourteen dollars an hour. I'll make it easy." So I started there, and um, I met the first young man who I mentored. And he was in foster care, and he was being severely abused in his foster home. He had sneakers with cardboard in it, with holes in the bottom. And he, during the bad weather, he would have to put plastic bags on over his socks before he put his foot in the sneaker because the sneakers had holes. He was severely abused before foster care because he had been burnt. Um, his head, he was dumped in a pot of boiling water. And the top of his head was burnt up badly, so he never took his hats off. He kept a hat on all the time, winter, summer, and he was real angry, to say the least. Every kid, justifiably so. Yeah, he, every kid he saw, he hit, and he fought with. He was ten, and um, I was close to another kid initially, and he didn't like that, and he used to beat that kid up every day because that kid was like closer to me. And then I kind of got them to become friends, and he definitely needed a friend. And he started telling me about his foster home. I had no reason to deny him because his appearance was evident that he was not being treated properly. He said that he was eating, she would buy her kids McDonald's and he would have to eat. She worked in some cafeteria, she'd bring that food home for him to eat every day. Like, this is crazy. So he was staying at a foster home with a family who had uh, some biological kids. Yes. And he was definitely treated differently. I kept in touch with him. He was eventually moved to another foster home, which was a little better. But we still kept in touch. He graduated from sixth grade, and we still kept in touch. He went to high school. We still kept in touch. And we kept in touch. For over for like 50 years now, we've still been in touch. He now works in a group home as a counselor and has been there for the last 25 years. And he um, works with people who are severely, profoundly um, developmentally disabled. And the all right, they, he works there and he grooms them and he. He makes sure their clothes are correct, and he does all of those things. And he's never married but had children. He said he doesn't have a need for family. He's definitely scarred from his childhood. And he's just an independent person who just does good wherever he goes. So was that your first uh, interaction with forced children where you said you wanted to take somebody in? Yes. And you actually took that person in? I didn't take him in officially. 
he would run away and end up in my house, and I would have to go to the precinct with him. He ran away on Christmas, and I couldn't get in touch with anybody, so I took him to my family's house for Christmas, mm -hmm. and my family always had little gifts in case people came by, uh -huh. so they had gifts, and he just had no idea that they were like that, so he thought that they got the gifts because he was coming. Uh, and he, uh, was like, uh, he was elated. I bet. So I bet. every holiday he wanted to go with me to my family's home, and I was like, "All right, we'll work on it." But we kept in touch, and when he was old enough that he could touch on his own, he did. He would just pop up. He would stay with me a day or two, and then he would go. Um, he's been on his own at least since he was 19 or 20, and he's done pretty well. He has his own apartment, he has a car. Um, he's pretty uh, pretty productive individual. So the first instance of you working for uh, ACS, first of all, you've been with ACS. First of all, ACS stands for what? The Administration for Children's Services. The Administration for Children's Services. And that means what? Like what ground does ACS cover? Ooh, protective, preventive, Juvenile justice, just about any forum that you can think of dealing with young people under 21. Under 21. Yes. So it's not just 16. Um, no, it's up until 21. Birth to 21. From yes. birth to 21. Yes. So, and normally the, the kids come to ACS, if they do come to ACS, at what age? Well, there is no particular age. It just depends on the circumstances. We have babies from the hospital. And come straight to foster care. We have like myself, right? Yes. Like yourself. We have older youth that maybe the parents take a pins out on, person in need of supervision uh -huh. because the parents can't handle their behaviors. Um, we have young people that's caught up in the juvenile justice system that comes to ACS because of that. So there's different avenues. So there is no particular age. It just depends on the circumstances. So there's no particular age or circumstances that bring them. It can be uh, any litany right. of things. It's so right. Abuse, neglect, like I said, a pins, um, a voluntary placement where the parent voluntarily places the young person in care because they can't handle them. So it could be different reasons why. So for that reason, it's all ages. So we could have one babies, like I stated, and we can have older youth. And what does the care look like? I know it varies from circumstance to circumstance, situation to situation, but I'm guessing. I'm trying to phrase this. How does somebody end up in the care? What does it look like once they are there? Someone ends up there. It's pretty much like I stated yeah. for the different reasons. And um, in terms of the services, every service plan is different depending on what the family needs. So our main goal is usually not to remove the youth or child from their home. So if they can be sustained in the home with preventive services or any supportive services, that's usually our first goal. That's not possible for whatever reason, then it becomes a protective case and we bring them into a foster care environment and we tailor a plan to work with the family so that eventually the goal is to return to the young person. So how it just many, depends on how many people are actually working with this? How many people? <laughs> Number of people. I have no idea. Uh, a thousand? Well, I would say more than one. Yes. Yeah. Is, is Sure, because aside from this office, which is our main office, we have satellite quote field offices uh -huh. where they provide the protective services. Uh -huh. So we have them in the various boroughs. So, so if you let's just say eight, is eight thousand? <laughs> how maybe. many families are you actually working with? With eight thousand? Wow. See, each of that family may be getting services from different areas. They may get medical services. They may get health services, some get housing service, we have a housing unit here that's connected NYCHA. Um, so they get services from different places. So one family might be getting services from five different units. Is it 8,000 families? Is it one for one? Do you have no. one person to deal with every family? No. 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 So there are a few touches for right. each family. And is the first line of contact generally a social worker or you know, does it tend to be you know, Police intervention or hospital intervention, teacher intervention? It depends on what kind of um, placement it is. If, it's, if the child is a PINS, the first point of contact would be the court system. The court system or a parent would be so frustrated they would reach out to the court. If 
the child is in the black, it's usually the police are involved. If a child is like sickly, it could be a hospital that becomes involved and doctors could be involved and that could be the first point of contact. It depends on what kind of case it is. Alright, so let's get speaking to first point of contact. The first one you took in was when? Okay. What happened is I worked at that that program, that school program for nine years. Mm -hmm. And I helped kids along the way through there and I'm still in touch with some of those. Mm -hmm. And then I came to ACS as a what's known as a house parent. Mm -hmm. And because I felt like I could do more, school was not enough. And people were a little resentful if you're helping their kids and they're sending them to school and you're helping them with stuff outside of school. People don't really appreciate that. They're like, you know, what's your point? I think I'm not doing a good enough job. So some people were appreciative and they were good with it. But I said, okay, I saw this job. I was going, I was getting married in a year and this job was paying much more. More than fourteen dollars an hour in nineteen sixty something. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Original was, baller. <laughs> what happened is this job, the job that I initially took as a house parent was a mandatory sixty hour work week. So I worked in a group home for sixty hours a week. Mandatory, but it was never sixty. It was one work the the, the craziest week I did was hundred and twenty hours and it was like, because we had very, we were very short on staff, and I worked in a house where there were 16 kids. Define a group home. A group home was... You're looking a little... You, you, no, no, I just... Okay. Uh, yeah, I've been there, done that. Yeah, he's, he's been, he's mm -hmm. a product of the foster care system, so... A group home is a, usually a large house or a building that houses, usually it's no more than 12 kids, but back some years ago, it would be more than that because there was not enough placements and not enough staff to cover it. It was a job where people came in and after like a month or so, they would leave the job. They just were like, I can't do this. And what's the age range of uh, youth in a group home? In that particular group home I was in, the age range was from 14 to 21. 14 to 21. You don't keep them in a group home after they do. It's called an exception to policy, but that's because you're in school and you're put in for housing uh -huh. and you're waiting. Okay. Okay. I mean, I've had kids in foster homes. I have one now that's 23, mm -hmm. and his housing just came through recently, so he's waiting for NYCHA to finish the apartment. Okay. Um, you you've had experience in uh, a group home. Okay. All right. I was in I was in foster care from the age of four, so I aged out at 21. Uh-huh. And so foster homes, group homes, yes. On a scale of uh, one to ten, how would you rate that experience? Well, as far as my foster home experience or my group home experience? All of it. Okay, so um, honestly, I say I say about a seven. A seven. Yeah. So you had you had some positive influences during that time. Yeah. Well a lot of people well, he's here. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, he's here. And he's well, working here. And he's working yeah. as a staff member. Well yeah. a lot of people well a lot of my um, I called my mother, she's not my birth mother, but she's my, she one of my foster mothers. My godmother, she's one of my foster mothers, and she's been in my life since I was nine. Uh -huh. She's been a blessing. Uh -huh. You know, uh, a lot of the group home staff, even the young people, those are my brothers. You know, like, when you're in the agency for, you know, I was in St. Vincent's Hardship for, yeah, since the age of four, I was, I was only in one agency my, my whole life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting old now, I'm 28, so. Old. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh, um, I really didn't have a bad experience. For me, it was more why can I go back home to be with my mother and my father. You know, so I say this for sure, right? I had the crazy, I had the crazy experience. So uh, at one point, I was in a group home in Queens, right? Every weekend, I was playing basketball in this park, and something about this park just it felt real familiar to me. Not knowing that my biological family lived on the in the park. Wow. So I'm playing, so I'm playing in this park every weekend, every weekend. So I come back home and I'm telling my, telling my mom, I'm like, mom, you know, I really want to find my family. I mean, I just want to get some answers, you know? Like, that would close, you know? So, so she did a little research and come to find out they didn't want to answer the phone. So, go knock on the door. And uh, so, we backtrack. So, on Jamaica Avenue, they'll just grow every day as the walk past. 
critic, right? So I'm always talking to him, don't talk about it. That's not for you. Come to find out she's my cousin. Wow. So that was like, that's a real Caribbean experience. Exactly, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, so, 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 I'm, so, so I'm, walking, I'm walking the house, and she's sitting right there on the couch. And they're like, oh, James, that's her first cousin Tiffany. I'm like, yo, I see, like, yeah, I see you every day on Jamaica Avenue. And she always told me, don't I try to talk to She wasn't for you. So that kind of, uh, you know, as, as my aunts, you know, they sat me down and they pretty much told me, like, it wasn't really, it wasn't really that your, you know, your mother didn't want you. She had a lot of mental issues going on in her life and she knew that she wasn't capable. You know, so I respect that. Because, you know, what do you mean, boy? 1990. 1990. Yes. So I experienced a lot of that myself, mm-hmm. like, um, that feeling of what is it about me that uh, my family or my parents or whatever else it is didn't um, keep me. And I talked about this on our, one of our uh, episodes. Um, so Steve Jobs was adopted also, right? And somebody once said to him, why is it always uh, children who were adopted feel like they were rejected versus somebody actually accepted them and their children chose them or whatever? So I struggled with a lot of that my entire life. And growing up, um, so I built, I'm in construction. And I built the Atlantic Terminal across the street from the Barclay Center. And every morning I used to have to meet with the guy who ran the station. And there was a conductor who would come in and sit next to me every morning in the wheelhouse. And one day she turned to me and she says, do you have family from the South or whatever else? And she just looked really familiar to me. Blah, 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 blah. I sat next to this woman every morning for a year. Um, she just didn't ask the right question. Um, turned around that ended up being my biological aunt when I did some history and searching on my own. Wow. And if we had touched base a year earlier, I probably would have met my biological mom because my biological mom passed the year before I actually got in touch with her. But I just never made the connection. So. But let's 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 get back. We, we can go on, and we've got you know. Um, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. You forced me to do it. Um, but go ahead. I'm going to say this though, um, and I'm. It's not. All right. Here's what happens. There are different kinds of kids in foster care and being adopted, and some kids take advantage of what's presented to them. They may be hung up on where's my parents, why me, this, but they take advantage and they excel. James happens to be one of them. Good point. All right. Good but point. the kids that I usually get are the ones that have been in many different homes, raised by many different people, and their directions are everywhere. They're twisted around because they're like, nobody wants me. Not only did my biological parents give me up, but the parents that the city assigned me to, they gave me up too. So... I always take those kind of kids because people say, oh, you always take the bad. I said, no, they're not bad. What happens is those are the kids that are misunderstood and that nobody took the time to tell them, I love you. So therefore, I'll take that kind of kid because if you can get to them and you can reach them and you can reach their heart, they can be really productive because they're going to do it just because you have faith in them. So you're the safe house, essentially. You you, you become the place where... They, yeah, people have asked me to take kids. They're like, you know, my, our director, she said, can you take this kid? Okay, I got a vacancy, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I will take what people, it's, it's a challenge sometimes, and I, I don't always succeed, and sometimes I can't do this anymore. All right, it's, it's not working. And I'll, I'll, I'll always take a kid back two and three times. I'll let them go someplace else, and usually they're like, can I come back? Yeah, you can come back. I've done it so many times because I realized that they're kids and they're not going to get it in the first shot. It's not going to happen. So people say, why are you taking that kid back? They gave you so much trouble. Because they're kids. They're allowed to make mistakes, all right? So let me catch the mistakes before they become adults. And so I always take them back. What you just said there is so powerful. You know, it's, it's something that... Yeah, I try to share with people as a parent is the idea that even kids who don't have the pain body that, that these kids that you've been helping out, kids who don't come with, with those experiences are going to make mistakes, are going to have difficulties. 
And it's not because they're malicious, it's not because they're evil, it's not because they're mean-spirited, it's because they're kids. And they don't have the, the experiences or even the, the biology yet to have proper decision-making capability. So I, then you look at kids who have gone through certain experiences, certain trials and tribulations that make it a, a bit more difficult for them to make proper decisions or to process certain circumstances and situations. Why aren't they deserving of, of another chance? They absolutely should. And do you know how many kids come into the system and have nobody that they can say, mom, like James said, that he can say, this is my mother, my godmother is mom. So many kids don't have that. They don't have anybody that they can say that to. Or, you know, and then they're, while they're going through all this turmoil and in these different places, they're still trying to, where's my biological family? Let me try to find them. So there, there's so much turmoil there that they can't focus on what needs to what needs to be done so that they can move ahead. And most times they're refusing therapy. And I don't know that therapy always addresses the issue that's um, that's going on with them because the pain is so deep that they're not willing to share all of that. So um, my thing is home therapy. I help you as much as I can. I can tell you I love you on a regular basis. I basically know who needs to hear that regularly. And that's from over the years. And it's just the way it is. So there's not a day that goes by in my house that I don't use the word love in some kind of way because it's necessary. So the thing you just said that just uh, resonated with me, right, is that, you know, I'm sitting here, or I used to sit around saying, me, why my parents? And you said that there's kids running around who's not only saying their parents, but they've been through two or three or four foster homes, and they're just saying nobody Exactly, exactly. I can give you a perfect example. The youngest kid I have right now is 15, and I usually don't take kids that young. But when he came to my house, he had just come into care, and he had been with other family members, and he was really, he's still really out of control. Right, I'm, 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 the towel is right here in my hand. But he's cut really, me first. Cut really, me. Don't throw it in. Cut really me. Really difficult. And he, he went to a meeting with his mother and the team from the agency, and he, he said the next, like after the meeting, he was really kind of abrasive to his mother. You don't want me. I'm your only child, and you don't want. Me. And I didn't know the circumstance, and then. Like when we got back, because we had the meeting, because I told him I can't do this anymore. I said, school's getting ready to start. This was just a couple of weeks ago. I said, school's getting ready to start. This guy's out of control. He's staying out every night. He comes home two days later. He's 15, and he just doesn't get it. So they asked me, just work with him. I was like, I can't, I can't. So then when we got home from the meeting, he's like, don't throw me away. He said, please. He said, I couldn't take it again. I just like fell apart because this kid is like, I said, okay, I give in. Everybody said, he got you. I said, he got me. I couldn't like tell him, you know, leave. Even I would come to my supervisor every day, I complain, can't take him. And then she says, so what happened? I said, I'm keeping him. She said, yeah, <laughs> she knew I was going to keep him. And he's, he's better. Yeah. He doesn't stay out at night. He's in for his curfew. He still has some baby steps. Some little things. Baby yeah, steps. He still has some little things, but his grandparents who had him, they're they're feeling like I'm being too lenient with him, and they want to put him in a boot camp in South Carolina. So I said, okay. So you know, I I work with what I can right now, and he, I said, what do you? How do you feel about the boot camp? He said, I'm gonna go. I said, why? He said, cause I'm a mess here. I just can't keep out of trouble. And he said, don't throw me away. Don't throw me away. The words right there speak volumes. Don't throw me away. It killed me. It killed me to hear him say that. I'm sitting here choked up. He said, me hard. It killed me. And I feel bad. Like, And then your friend said, I knew it. I knew it. She always says that. I can't do this. I'm getting rid of this kid. I'm going to I'm gonna send him to someone else. She's like, yeah, OK. I can't because it's not that I've ever had that issue. You know, I came from a very loving, wanting family. 
So it's not like I can really understand what they're going through, but I came from a loving family, and we would never do that to each other. So therefore, it's unheard of to me to like, you know, to give your kid up for whatever the reason is. So when somebody's telling me that, don't give me away, don't throw me away, it, that that just like nah, okay. So I, and I, I think that leads me to the, my thought process because I always talk about like root cause analysis and the basis of things, like your roots. So tell us a little bit about like your family of origin and the household that you know that you established before taking. I lived in Bushwick, in a brown Brooklyn, yes. <laughs> in a brown with my mother's two sisters on the home, and her two sisters and their husbands, and my grandmother lived with us, my mother's mother. So it was so. Wait, 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 wait. So this was in the fifties. Yes. Old school. Yes. Surrounded so right by women. Old yes. school. Yes. And it was my cousins. There were seven of us. Total. My uncle didn't live with us, but my we had a cousin. His name is Dooney. Dooney was always at the house too. So there were seven of us. Christmas was like department store. They cleared everything out the living room, and it was nothing but packages all over the living room, and it was all wrapped like everybody had different wrapping paper and stuff. So you knew it was yours because that wrapping paper. Thanksgiving was like there were kitchens all through the house, so you could eat at any given point in any kitchen you wanted if you didn't like what was down like it. I went downstairs and there was liver in the pot. No, I, was, I, would, I would be upstairs like I'm <laughs> liver, that's not gonna happen. I, I would always say to my grandmother, what does liver do? Liver filters out the dirt in your body. Right. You want me to eat that, right? And I always say that to her. And she was like, guess what? You're gonna eat it. And I'm like, guess what? We had a dog named Trixie. Trixie got the little Trixie used to get the liver, okay? Because I wasn't touching the liver, but it was that kind of environment. We did. Family. Yeah. My aunt was on the community board. She was president of the community board. The, the summer um, lunch program was given out of my house on the first floor. So, so y'all were a staple in the community. Oh, definitely. Definitely. The summer youth program was out of my house. So my first experience with summer youth was right outside my door, mm -hmm. and my aunt eventually opened the first daycare center in the area. They were the state women. And we did a lot, and at any given point, I would wake up and I'd be like, who's that on the couch? My mother said, mind your business. <laughs> it would be somebody's kid who got thrown out, and my family always took anybody in. They, they never did, they always took people in, they always gave food to people that didn't have, if somebody had a bunch of kids, I would watch my mother and my aunts, and then they'd be talking, and be like, oh, she looks like she needs some help, you know. And they would go grocery shopping, just take the groceries there. It was just that way. That's how it was. And it definitely rubbed it off, because with the exception, all my family is like that. They're all, all of my cousins, they're like that. They're always taking in somebody. And it comes from childhood. It comes from, yeah. we, we were the Kool-Aid house. Yeah. Everybody came, everybody sat on the steps during the summer. Yeah. Everybody knew once my mother came out, they get up, like, all right, it's time to go, because she gets ready to, and she would just look. and said, don't y'all have home? And everybody would leave. But it was, you know, we, we definitely were a community-involved family. You know, it's a burden thing. It is absolutely it. Most of the things that you describe, pretty much everything you describe, sounds like the house I grew up in. I grew up in Crown Heights. Mm -hmm. And it became that place where there was always somebody other than, and in my house it was a large family too. I'm, I'm third of five. And there was always some cousin living with us. You know, my grandmother lived with us. Mm -hmm. Neighborhood kids would come and hang out and be there till all manner of ungodly hour. Mm -hmm. And my dad would come home, and there's somebody in his fridge drinking his juice and eating his food that he had to buy for you know, all of us. But he, he looked, he just kind of shook his head and keep it moving because he knows, hey, this kid has a need. And that behavior carries on. You obviously watched it. It's instilled in you. It, it's as innate in you as breathing or, or your, 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 your disdain for liver. It's, it's something yeah. you learned over the years. And so you mentioned being married. Are you still married? I'm still married. We're not divorced. We're not even legally separated. 
She is definitely my best friend. And how long have you been married? See, that's old school marriage, too, mm-hmm. right? It'll never, be, never yeah. actually get divorced. We got married in 1989. She's um, a flight attendant at JetBlue. She started there when JetBlue opened. Prior to that, she was the manager of a group home for severely disabled adults. And she now lives in South Carolina. And she's in another relationship that she's been in for the last, I'd say, 20 years. He's a cool guy. Me and him talk all the time. We talk about her. And, like, it's, you know, she's, I travel on buddy passes everywhere because she gives them to me. So my family loves her still. She, they, they always blame me. They think she is, like, and she is. She's, like, a great person. You know, I, I can't say enough about her. And did you guys have any kids? No, we had no children. No biological so, but that, but that's a great thing, you know, and I think that's a hallmark of our show is the fact that family isn't defined by one concept. What works for you and members of your family can't necessarily be defined by the people outside of, of that paradigm. And so, first kid you took in, how many kids do you have currently? I have four, a 23-year-old, two 21-year-olds, and a 15-year-old. Seven. We got seven? No, four. Say it again, say it one more time. A 23 year old. 23 year old. Two 21 year olds. The 23 year old was the one that's just transitioning out? Yes. Yeah. Got waiting for Nitro to finish your party. Yes. Go ahead. And a 15 year old. And a 15, the, the, the one you did not throw away. Yeah. He's still there. And what's the most you've ever had in the house of one? Nine. <laughs> so, how many bedrooms are in the house? <laughs> in our, now we have two. We have three, including mine. Three right. bedrooms. And I was in a brownstone on Madison, mm-hmm. and all right, it, it's a really crazy. Madison and Brooklyn. Yeah, Madison between Patchen and Malcolm X. Yeah, no. I, I, how long have you been in that? that I was there. That's where I was at. Yeah. And I was there for a couple of years, like three years. But the landlord sold the house for a lot of money. <laughs> right. You know, he was elderly, mm-hmm. and I kind of understood his point. But mm-hmm. he was really a good guy because what happened is, and. It, Everything, it's not coincidence, it happens for a reason. I was looking for an apartment. I was in a small apartment, and I had one kid, and then the one kid, it was the first kid I took, and I had that one kid, and he was like, I have a friend, and he's hard to place, and nobody would take him, and he's taking him, and I was like, <laughs> I said, all right, let me meet him. I, I took him, I ended up Word of mouth is the best advertising, <laughs> right? That's it, it's so, word of mouth. The room was just big enough for the two of them, mm-hmm. and then, that kid had a brother who was not in foster care, but had some problems at home and was thrown out. So he started coming over. I said, why are you coming here every day? And he said, I don't have anywhere to go. I said, I. He ended up living with us as well. So I said, okay, I got to find another place then. So I went to look at a place on the internet, and my coworker who's on vacation today said, I, I found this place, but I don't know if it's, you know, it's a scam and it sounds too so I go there to the place, and the landlord was already in the house. And I get in the house, and the landlord's name is like a common name, like John Doe. So I didn't think anything of it. So I walk in the house, and I, I his back is to me. And then he turns around. He said, welcome to your apartment, Mr. Bryan. And I looked at him, and he was somebody I knew from childhood. Wow. So I said, you knew it was me the whole time. He said, I sure did. He said, um. And I, you had explained to me you had foster kids and stuff. So he said, and I remember your family and how they were. So he said, I had already decided. I told my wife, I'm going to give this guy the apartment. So he gave me the apartment. And it, it was a ground floor, but it was in bad shape. And he wasn't charging me for the ground floor and the second floor. He was only charging me like $1,800 a month, which, which was like... It was three bedrooms upstairs. And this is still in Bushwick? No, this is in Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy. And it was three bedrooms upstairs, and on the first floor, it was a huge living room. I mean, unbelievably huge. A kitchen and a bathroom, and then the bathroom on the second floor. So he said, you can do whatever you want to it. And I had one of my older kids that I worked with that was a carpenter, and he built a wall. He built me a bed. So my bedroom was on the first floor, and it was about as big as this area, and then it was still a living room space. So um, I had the three bedrooms on the second floor, and I put a little kitchen area there, refrigerator. I would make food downstairs, and then put it in the refrigerator upstairs with the microwave that could heat up the meat. 
So it was, it was, it worked. Then I got those three kids, then I got two more kids. So I had four kids that were in foster care and one that wasn't. And then one of the kids that I got, he came out of jail and nobody would take him. They said, no. Everybody was like, he's on, he was on a gun drug charge and they wouldn't take him. So they brought him to me. He said, thank you because they had no place to put me. And I said, here now. How old was he? He was just going to be 18. And I said, what you have to do with it, you got to finish school. So he said, okay. He finished high school that year. And he had a brother who was homeless. His brother came to live with us too. So I had five with the city. So so, so, what is a day like in the house? Yeah. I mean, I know you come here Monday through Friday, right? So this is your hideout, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Saturday morning, you ain't going to work. What is a day like? In the house, I, it's I, I, actually it's quiet. It's not really that like when I'm home, they're they're pretty quiet. Like I'll be in my room unless I need to be out of it. It's not like I, they actually don't bother me. Like they will say, like they'll say, "Oh, Bob is home. You know, be quiet. Don't make too much noise." But most of the time, I'm not sleeping. But you know, they're pretty considerate. Who's doing the cooking? I am. Who does the cleaning? Whoever needs to. If it's dirty, clean it. Don't like have me, you know, clean it. Just if it's dirty, clean it. Mm-hmm. See, I try to institute that in my house, and it's failing miserably. <laughs> See, it's different when you have two hundred dollars allowance yeah. a month. That's what they get. So I have this thing called deductions. So if I come in and I see something is really dirty, and it you made the mess, and I have to clean it. I get paid. It's called maid service. <laughs> so I will charge you maid service if I have to make your bed. If I have to vacuum the room, I'm charging maid service. If I have to wash your pan, I'm charging maid service. Nobody wants that, right? right? So therefore, it just gets done. Yeah, it's called maid service. That's so. that brilliant. I didn't <laughs> broke. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't broke. <laughs> and I'm laughing because like, maybe I should pay them. <laughs> and it's not. It works. Like I even have. Hotel fees, which is because you have young men, you have to suspect and believe that they're going to try to bring the girlfriend in. Right. If you bring your girlfriend in and it's not a holiday or authorized and stuff, you will pay $80 hotel fee. Wow. Okay. Because it's cheaper than going to the store today. Actually, it's probably, okay, maybe it's not cheaper than going to the store. I don't know. I've been there in a while. Definitely. And nobody wants to pay that. So I I do have my little those are my little rules because and then the money I don't I don't spend it. It goes into a little fund and we go on vacations a couple of times a year. We're getting ready to go to Atlantic City for the weekend so we can do fall shopping. I'm renting a suite for me and a suite for them. And then I'm gonna give them their money. They're gonna go shopping. We're gonna stay at Harris. It works. So you, you've got a system for it. Yeah. You, you get, you've got a method for that. Yeah. So the, the other thing that crosses my mind, because I used to, in our neighborhood, we used to say, three boys, you have sons, four boys, you got a gang. And so anything above that is like, you, you have a pack of boys. How do you maintain order with four more boys in the house with all that testosterone? We have, there's a no fight policy. You cannot talk to each other for as long as you want. But the minute you have a fight in my house, the, the aggressor is gone. I, I'm like really strict about that because I can't do that. I'm, I'm not used to it, first of all, and it, it makes a bad environment. Like the younger one and the oldest one are not talking now. They haven't been talking in almost two weeks. And they'll talk to me about it, but they won't talk to each other. And I'm going to leave it. I'm going to let it. I'm not going to intervene because it's not necessary. Everybody's not always going to agree with each other. So it's not for me to work out. Hopefully this trip will work things out and smooth things over. And if it doesn't, then it'll it'll happen. I've never had it where it didn't happen. All right. But don't let anybody bother any of them because the rest of them will be right there. It's just it's just that way. So, like you were saying, these are my brothers. Yeah, and that's how they feel. The agency, they had went to a function one time, and this kid stood up to one of the other one, and they were like, touch my brother, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can't, because they sl- they live, sleep, eat, breathe, everything with each other. So as far as they're concerned, they're brothers. 
So it's, a, it's like a gang. And the six kids I had at the time would go, and then the other three who weren't in foster care, they would go to the functions as well. And two of them were brothers to two of the kids I had in care. And one was, I call them the add-ons. He was add-on. He wandered the neighborhood, and he didn't have any place to go. And one morning, I was coming out to go to work, and he was sleeping on the top step. I said, what are you doing? He said, I, he said, I haven't had any place to live the whole summer. I'm like, you're sleeping on the steps. So I said, why didn't you say something? He said, well, they've been sneaking me in, but last night I got here late and there was nobody at the door. I'm like, okay, it's like the dawn side. So I, I have add-ons all the time. So, I have an add-on right so, now. So, so one of the things I'm hearing, right, is that is it so much that they really, like, just didn't have any place to go, or is it there's no place to go where they feel at peace? It's both. Some people had no place to go where... Period. Think, yeah, some Literally. people that... There, there were kids in the shelter, like, and the program that I work in now is Supervision 21. Uh -huh. and these are kids that signed out of care at 18 or were signed out by the court, and they have, literally, there are lots of them in the shelter, and, and we track them and try to find them and provide services for them. Mm -hmm. But I do the same thing at home. I provide services for my kids and their friends, and through all of this article in the Huffington Post, a woman looked me up on Facebook, she has an 18-year-old, and she was like, my son is just so out of control that he's in the, in the street, and I want you to try to talk to him. And he's been coming here, and yesterday my director was like, who is that? <laughs> I told her. He's actually a pretty famous kid, and I can tell you without mentioning his name, a few years ago there was a teacher who beat up a child because the child had stole his drug money. Mm -hmm. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Mm -hmm. It's this kid, and she, the mother said, ever since then, he's been just out of control. So I got him into a youth shelter. I got his housing done. I brought him in some sneakers because she won't do anything for him at this point. She feeds him, and she said, but, you know, he's just out there right now. And we're talking about uh, his mother is an associate professor at NYU, and his father has a master's in computer science and something else and works for some big and he just won't comply. So he's been coming by, he had his housing, he now has a diagnosis because of what happened. He has PTSD and some bipolar issues. Um, she said, he's responding really well to you. I can't believe it, and neither can my sister and the rest of my family, so they've all been calling me. And yesterday he came, and I said, who is this? And he brought somebody else with him. So advertising, <laughs> word of mouth is the best advertising. Yeah, so he's like, I've been homeless for and he's 18. And homeless meaning living out, sleeping he's out living in the out streets. In different people's houses, in the out. streets, on the train. And he lives in the DYCD shelter as well now. And he's coming back this afternoon to bring you his paperwork proving he lived there so I can get him some housing done. So my director said, so now you're doing DYCD kids as well. She said, that's not our program. I said, you're going to tell me not to do like you would listen to me anyway. So it's like, if you're a kid and you need some place to go, let me help you, let me give you. I There have been kids here who have come in and they had nowhere to go that night, and I, I let them come to my house. They say, you'll be sleeping on a mat on the floor, but I'd rather they be there than to be out in the street. Let, let, me, let, me, let me pivot one second. Talk to me really quick, right, about the challenges about children transitioning out of foster care. So I know that it was, you know, a big issue. And I don't want to say that this is what happens, right? Um, because I don't know. But the perception is that the first choice is like to go to the service. And then the second choice is they end up in shelters. It gets worse from their drugs, sex trafficking, all of that sort of stuff. How much truth is there to that? You see all of that. Sex trafficking, homelessness, um, drugs, gang affiliation. And um, the service isn't as much of an option right. as it used to be really because no, the high school diploma and GEDs, you need that. And a lot of them, because of bipolar, PTSD, they just don't finish school and they're not capable at that time. So they turn to the streets. That's what we had a big increase in the sex trap, a huge increase. And not just the females, the males as well. It's, it's really sad. I mean, that it's gotten to this point. You have you have 
13-year-old that is sex trafficked. They don't know any other way to put it. So if somebody wants to get involved, if somebody wants to be of service, what do you suggest? Become a foster parent for older youth. For older youth? Yes. Greatest so need. you're saying we babies, know. two, three, where do you start to see the challenge? At what age do you start to see the challenge? You can see them at babies, two, three, four, depending on what type of drugs their mother might have been on during um, her prenatal period. See them, but people will always give a small child a chance saying, I can make that kid, I can develop them, I can mold them. But the older one, everybody's like, they're setting their ways, they've already been, that's too much to deal with. Like all my family, and when I first started to say, You're crazy, you go to work and do it, and then you're gonna bring it home too. I mean, that's where the need is. I was doing it anyway, so um, I might as well get the assistance to foster care to do it better. I, I would always feed somebody's kids and stuff, so I said, I might as well get it through foster care. So, 10 years old, 11 years old, where do you see that challenge really? But what's, the, what's the line where you start seeing people going, uh, 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 Right, it's hard to say because like I said, it can start much earlier than that. You'll see some of the behaviors manifesting, but I would definitely say by 12, 13, yeah. You start to see if there's serious issues. Yeah, and that's where you usually see the need for for right. fostering, like well, additional okay. people. Right. Yeah, because I last year I had an 11, well, in 2016, I got him. 11, 11 year old. Yeah, an 11 year old, and he was in another home. He had just started going crazy, and they said, "Look, we need to put him someplace where all the kids because he's out of control." And because the older kids check him. Yeah, kind of like, you know, he, he his behavior won't be as, like, hitting them and that kind of stuff. They were worried about that. Uh -huh. And he couldn't put him in a home with kids his age and younger. Uh -huh. So he came to us just as a respite for the weekend. And my kids were like, can we keep him? I said, he's not a partner. He's, he's a kid. He's not. And I had come in that day and I told my supervisor. And she said, you're going to keep him. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I said, 11 year old, you're in school. Well, I was against younger kids. Yes, I'm it's like, a lot no, of I don't want to do all of that. So, like, he was like, can I stay? And I was like, no. I said, this is not the home for you. I said, you can't be here. My kids were like, we'll do everything. We'll go to school for him. We'll feed him. We'll wash his clothes. And I was like, I can't. You did. I did. And he stayed. And they they did everything. They did. You kept him? They, yeah. They did everything for him. They, they cooked for him, they cleaned, they took him shopping, they went to the medical appointments for him, with him, they, they, did, they went to school for him, and sometimes I didn't even know it, they would be going to school for him if he got in trouble. So he, they, they really did take good care of him. He's now 14, he's not with me, he's home. He still has his keys, and he comes back whenever he feels like it, and he may be there at any given time. Um, he's definitely, he's more mature than most 14-year-olds in some aspects, and he's very headstrong, very smart kid. Really, when I say he could do college with ease, I mean, his reading level is already like 11, 12th grade, and he's just going into high school now. And he's a bright kid, but he, you know, he does have his issues, and he's part of the stubborn stubborn but he's my kid and when he left to go home I was in tears I was miserable and my supervisor kept telling me she said you said you didn't want to take this kid and now look at you and I was wrecked I, for weeks I was so upset that he was going home I was glad he was reunited with his mother but I missed him terribly you had a foul home from 11 to 13 and a half because he left That's about six time. months ago yeah yeah, yeah. and he was like, he knew how to get to me more than any other kid that I've ever had. He knew what to do to make me, like, give in to him. Oh, no, I want those sneakers. And I would just get, I said, he, and I, the kid said, look what you're doing. I said, he's the youngest. He's the baby. Youngest. I said, he can't go to work yet. So I would make all kinds of excuses as long as he did well in school. And they felt like, the school felt like he had done such a big turnaround. Um, his grades could have used him but they said that his behavior, they used to have to put him in timeout every day. So, I mean, I just, like I said, I won't take a kid that young again because the attachment and then especially if they go to return to parents, I'm so attached to them that I was like, I can't do this. But his mother lets him come whenever she wants to. His mother lets him come over and she knows he has his keys. Is there anybody doing 
what he's doing for girls. You don't have anybody on your staff? Not I'm thinking that you made. I'm thinking you have as oh, much to do with this. No, as definitely no, not. No. Mr. Brian was like this long before I met him. When uh, I met him, he was already a foster uh-huh. And just as caring as he is now, so everything was already safe. But, but is um, there anybody like this doing this for girls? Not that I can think of, but I have said to him, we need someone like him for the young lady. Have you ever Definitely. considered taking any girls, or is it just a... a no. Yeah. I wouldn't take them together. Yeah, no, not together. <laughs> People don't understand when I say that, but I, you cannot imagine what would go on, okay? Oh, yes, we can. Yeah, so... I wouldn't take, um, but my coworker who was on vacation, he only took girls, and he was a single parent, and he took girls, and he took a, a sibling group with three sisters, and they all had degrees, and they all live in different parts of the, like California, and they are married, and one has children, and those girls are like. They still call him daddy, and he still sends them money when things are not right. And he's like, he did such a great job with them, and he's not doing foster care now. But he did such a great job with them. And I was like, at one point, we lived in the same house with him, and he lived on the first one. I lived on the second, and I had the boys, and he had the girls. And it was hard enough keeping them separate. So to imagine keeping them all, to, to have them all in one no, I couldn't do it. And I did manage a girls' um, group home with 12 girls for a while. And um, that was quite an experience itself. It really was. Completely different. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Different set of circumstances. Um, so we've been at this for a little while, and uh, we need to wind down, unfortunately. I found myself just sitting here listening. So much of what you what you share, so many of the experiences that you've shared, and, and the days you've gone through with a lot of boys you've taken in, like, I'm remembering certain circumstances from my childhood where, you know, like, I had buddies who were couch surfing and didn't have somewhere to go because you know, their mom got a boyfriend and now the boyfriend didn't want them in the house so they had nowhere to go. Or they had some falling out because you know, they got involved in some street stuff and, you know, the mom didn't want them in the house or the dad didn't want them in the house or their families just didn't rock with them and they just were tired. And, you know, like, I... My dad would come home and there's some kids sleeping on the bench and we have them on the front porch, you know, chains and a wrought iron gate. Been there for, you know, since the 80s. And some kids sleep on the outside. Or my parents would live in the basement and, you know, they hear the footsteps. And they go, who's that? Because it's not one of my kids. That, that footfall yeah. sounds different. I remember in my house it's the same way. <laughs> or, 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 or there's extra footsteps. Yeah. You know? So absolutely, they know the steps that high. They trip. Oh, my kids don't be tripping up going up to the stairs. Yeah, that, that's exactly yeah. exactly. It's like somebody, somebody stepping too hard, or somebody yeah. stepping too soft. Yeah, yeah. So somebody, so, somebody <laughs> stepping too soft that really gets you. you. You're walking around like you want to be considerate. Yeah. My kids are considerate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Up to no good. Creeping. Up to no good. You creeping, right? Yeah, right. So I found myself, well, for the most part, just like sitting here, just taking this all in, and we usually do a section called pat on the back where. When somebody is doing the damn thing as a parent, and, you know, hats off to you. As I walked in here, I was like, you know, Guy Bryant is an aspirational talent. Like, I, I want to do this. You know, I, I want to be able to like, have that kind of impact. Wow. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I'm here choking up. <laughs> as only so, yeah, I think that I, I want to echo that. Um, a lot of people, including myself, equate greatness with winning the Super Bowl, curing cancer, and a bunch of other things, right? But I just want to sit here and say that I am looking at greatness right now. That you are a great person and that uh, you are doing amazing things. You have done amazing things. I don't even think, you know, what, what, so um, a lot of people like Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, but I'm really big on the one he did the night before he was killed. He says, you know, I may not get there with you, but at some point, this will all pan out, and even if I'm not around, people who come behind me will be better off because of me, which was basically, and I think that's what you're doing, and I applaud you. Um, it is people like you who saved my life. Thank you. Um, so uh, <laughs> we're going to wrap up Single Dad While You're Mad. We want to thank our guests for having us. Uh, if you're feeling a certain way about something we said or something we didn't say, 
Uh, single dad, why your man has a voicemail, 646-389-2852. And uh, we may even play uh, your message on the next episode. And ladies, gentlemen, and consenting adults, thank you again for joining us at the Single Dad, Why You Mad podcast. Now we're going to see you in about another two weeks. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. Uh, it's spelled out. We don't use the abbreviations. Visit our website, www.singledadwhyyoumad.com. Make sure to subscribe, comment, rate, review. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on all the, uh, the popular podcast formats. And thank you, thank you, thank you again to our 1,000-plus followers and subscribers. Make sure to tell a friend.